0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host Joel Cherney. My guest is Jean Theo Harris, author of the book The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. The book was published in 2013 with a 2015 printing with a new introduction. In addition to speaking about the book, Jean discusses the new documentary with the same title. Now streaming on the Peacock Network. We talk about how Rosa Parks is a misunderstood leader in the civil rights movement, often just mentioned for her bus arrest that led to the Montgomery bus boycott. Jean also reviews her participation in the 2022 documentary and how many of the points in the book were so well as illustrated in the film. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jean Theo Harris. Hi, Jean. Hi. Thanks for finding time to speak with me. Um, as uh, we talked even before I started recording, your uh, book that we are actually here to talk about uh, is, is, is even more so now uh, in the news and in, in discussion because of uh, the documentary that just came out recently, and we'll talk about that in detail too. And the book is The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, Written by Gene Theo Harris and um who has it's an it the book's over ten years old or almost ten years old from the first edition that came out in 2013. And then you also came out with a newer version a couple of years later with a new introduction. And quite frankly, the new introduction was just great because it sort of finished off the story of the first introduction of the second of the original edition. So um Obviously, I can imagine how long the whole process was of writing that first book, the, 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 the initial edition, given how much you had to get a hold of and review. But what, what was the real underpinnings to you as to why you felt it was important to write a, a detailed book about Rosa Parks?
1: So I, I actually got interested in her um, in 2005, which is when she dies. And uh, my interest begins as I think for many of us, right, watching the funeral, watching this kind of epic honoring of Mrs. Parks, um, you know, un- really unprecedented. She's the first woman to lie in honor in the Capitol, second African American. Only last year with Ruth Bader Ginsburg have we had a second woman there. And yet how she's being honored gets kind of narrower and narrower, and she's constantly referred to as quiet, and she's eulogized as the accidental matriarch, and these sorts of words. And so my initial kind of foray into the subject is actually about civil rights memorialization um, and pub- and national memory. And I you know, my I gave a talk that was about how we couldn't really separate this from what had happened less than two months earlier, which was the sort of Hurricane Katrina and their federal uh, negligence um, during and after the storm. And so it didn't seem like a coincidence that we have this like congressional stampede to honor Mrs. Parks when the what had happened after Katrina had raised really profound questions about enduring racial and social inequality. So I, I give a talk, I give another talk on this and a friend says, Jean, will you turn that talk into a chapter for a book I'm writing? I was like, oh yeah, sure. And so I'm like, I, now I gotta find, I mean, someone must have written a good biography of her. right? I'd read her autobiography. She did a young adult autobiography in 92, which I loved. But I was like, there must be something good. I just can't think of it. Maybe it came out in the 80s. And then I'm looking, 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 and there's nothing. There's a little Doug Brinkley, Penguin Lives, not footnoted. There are definitely some young adult books, books for, you know, high school students, junior high school students, elementary school students, um, but no serious footnoted biography. And the argument I was making, right, this seemed to further it, which was that on the one hand, we were having this epic honoring for Rosa Parks. And on the other hand, it was about kind of a a very narrow version of her, of the civil rights movement that served a, a kind of national interest in the present to sort of of in some ways detail this narrative of progress and not actually having a full biography of her work to that effect as well. Uh, So I do, working on this article, I also realize how big the story is. I start to dig a little bit. I look at the papers at Wayne State, which is where she puts the first batch of her papers. And I start to realize, I mean, I had known, I think many of us had known, she wasn't just a simple seamstress. It wasn't a one day thing, you know, secretary of the NAACP. Uh, but even what that meant, I think we just really hadn't understood. Um, and you know how dangerous it was, how much she pushed, she and a small group of people in Montgomery were pushing toward Montgomery's chapter to be a much more activist branch. And so I start to see that. And that's when I realize it's not just an article, it's a book. Um, and so then I spend like six years doing that research, uh, six, seven years. And then as you noted, the first, the book first comes out in
2: 2013. And you start the book, the original introduction mm-hmm. um, talks about basically what you just said. It, it's it's this whole dichotomy of being lauded by people who don't really know who she is or even knew anything and about what she really stood for or what she did. Mm-hmm. Um, none of the people who were involved with her are really discussed in detail and, and as both the book and the documentary point out she was radical in many way, things that she did and she certainly wasn't I mean the, the word in the title rebellious is I think uh, the best word because she did things she didn't do things to be nice she didn't do things to um, you know as we say be quiet which unfortunately seems to be one of those words that gets used about her all the time and, and you point that out that right at the beginning that she wasn't that way. That wasn't what she wanted to do. And 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 as we get into the discussion about the um, the if we go right into the bus issue, that mm-hmm. certainly wasn't. Most people, I think, over time have learned that okay, it wasn't completely hap, It wasn't happenstance. It, there, you know there had been bus issues. A, a boy. Now there had been people yeah. arrested. Prior to her, in fact, going back very far, Mm -hmm. but nobody had taken the time, decided it was time to try to do something more. But her story is about racism going back to her birth. Yes. And that background information is so important to understand why she, you know, why what she did was so important. And, And her life was built around racism right from the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one of her earliest memories. Um, so she, she, her. She's born in Tuskegee. Uh, her brother is born about two and a half years later, and her father leaves at that point, and so her mother moves them back in with her mother's parents in Pine Level, Alabama. And one of um, her first real memories is this is 1919. We're right after World War One. Uh, black soldiers are coming back uh 1919 is a is a, is a you know some people will call it red summer it's there's an uptake mm-hmm. of white violence across the country um trying to put you know make sure that black soldiers don't get any ideas uh put black soldiers back in their place and what that means in pine level is the clan is more active and riding and her grandfather starts to sit out at night um, with his shotgun to make sure to protect them, to protect their home. Um, And sometimes a six-year-old Rosa sits with him, right? And that's a very different place to start our story, right? Like that from the beginning, both racial terror and the kind of determination not to sit by, um, both of those things start really at home and very early for her.
2: And of course, the idea of men coming, black men coming home from the war, expecting for mm-hmm. things to be better since they fought, we'd see that again after World War II. Um, Absolutely, there, there were differences. Okay, World, I, war World War II was where we actually got results from it, but um, World War One, it's the same thing. So there's nothing new there. So uh, the other thing is that. Um, when she was growing up, she was dealing with the issues related to race, both um, she had uh, relatives, or her grandfather, I think, was somebody who could pass as white. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's the whole issue of of race even then. And then there's also the issues related to, um, as you pointed out, that, that, that all the things that were going on as she was growing up, where she was living and dealing with, the hatred that, that she lived with every day. And so this was not something that she was sitting idly by and just dealing with.
1: No. And then I think really where we see her political start really begin is when she meets, um, in her late teens, what, who she will describe as the first real activist I ever met. And that is Raymond Parks. Um, and Raymond Parks is a 20 year old barber, And he is also one of the local activists working to protect and defend the Scottsboro boys from being executed. And I think meeting Raymond, falling in love with Raymond opens her worldview to the possibility of like organized collective challenge, right? And that that is possible and, you know, not just possible, but doable. And so see, you know, seeing in Raymond, you know, that work and so from the very beginning, right, their relationship is born of that kind of shared commitment to justice. Um, and obviously part of what she admires and loves so much about him is he's not someone to stand by and let, um, and in the, you know, she's, he's not someone just to be like, yes, you know, yes, or yes, or yes, yes, yes. You know, he, he is someone who's, who, you know, uh, stands against injustice. And so that begins her her own journey into becoming a much more public activist. And so in the beginnings of their relationship, he's the more public activist, and then we will see that change and she will become the more public activist, he will become more behind the scenes. But again, that shared commitment.
2: Right, because even before before the bus boycott and everything, she was very involved with the local NAACP, she was secretary And she just showed up one day, and suddenly that's where it began for her. But she'd been doing this kind of work, but now she got into the organizing part of it. And that's where she learned all that needed to be learned to make the most of events as they would go forward, not only the bus boycott, but also other things as she got older. But uh, she was very strong in her beliefs, and... The way she, and then there was unfortunately also the issues related to um, sexual uh, violence and stuff, and how she had to, and she, you know, you talk about it both in the book and then they also talk about it in the documentary about having to deal with something that you just fight back and say no. And uh, I think that part of an example is, like I say, go get away from this passive belief that we have of her or had um of what she really stood for
1: and i think one of the things if you know for me one of the things i most admire about her is that her belief that you stand against something even when it's not going to necessarily change things and even when you can't necessarily see where it's going to go and that's one of her greatest superpowers right because there's an she's done all sorts of activism like you just said before we get to december 1st 1955 and she's done that over and over, and she talks about how it was hard to keep going because all our efforts seemed in vain, but she keeps going. And that's one of the things that I think is most admirable and most missed in the way we, the myth of her, because I think part of what she is able to do is to hold to the belief that standing against injustice is important no matter what it does. And then, and you're not going to know, right, until long after, and that, the, 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 you know, saying you don't like it is crucial, even if it doesn't change the, the thing at first. And that is what she does over and over. And then, you know, we'll get to a moment where that stand actually turns into, you know, something much different.
2: Which at least had to have been related to the fact that she'd been seeing arrests and beatings and these Absolutely. issues related to the buses long before her Situation that she wasn't the first. She wasn't even, you know, so far into the of it. It just so happens, for a variety of reasons, her case is the one that ends up becoming the the important, the most public one. But it was uh, you can see in some of the things that she said, and and the good thing is she she was a vocal person. We maybe we don't have as much information as would be great. I know you do talk about the archive both in the first introduction and then the new introduction and uh, but there is a lot of good material from her uh, yeah. that you were able to access even before uh, even while you were writing the book but she's not shy about saying what she believes which is that the naacp and other officials should have been getting involved in this earlier they shouldn't have waited they shouldn't have kept waiting they needed to get something done sooner
1: yeah, she's like, I mean, one of the things she will say, you know, is like, "Why, you know, like, why, why did we wait so long? Like, right? this, like, trying and trying to get a movement in that, you know, particularly so she joins the NAACP, the Montgomery NAACP in 43. And she and Edie Nixon, um, who she meets shortly after that, who's, who's one of the people really doing the voter, mm-hmm. like, voting drives and voter registration drives. And, you know, that's really going to begin a partnership that's going to change American history, right? Because they're going to spend the next decade both pushing the Montgomery NAACP to being more active, but also this this circle of people that's going to be crucial to the boycott is partly cultivated through that, you know, those years, right? And people, you know, and then the community gets to a breaking point, and then they're able to, you know, move on it.
2: So, you know, we don't want to, you know, we can... The book is, I want people to read it, obviously, if they haven't already. Um, but so finally the bus, bus boycott in, happens and the whole thing. And this goes back to another part of her importance is that this was planned. The boycott was planned in advance, maybe not for this exact event, but they knew there were going to be a point where which they knew they were going to have to take a stand, so to speak, Uh and so, one of the things is that, um, and she was involved in prep even before this particular event. This was not something that they knew they were going to, and they it just showed her organizational ability. She's constantly, and not only in this example, but in in later parts of her life, how well she can put things together and get people to to work through. Uh, the work and, and and get all the nuts and bolts done for all, any kind of event.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so basically, after Brown v. Board, um, so one of the groups in Montgomery that had, had sort of taken up the issue of bus segregation was a group called the Women's Political Council. And after the decision in Brown comes down, the Women's Political Council, which had been pushing around issues of bus segregation, actually writes the bus company, and says you need you know, and says you need to change, or we're going to boycott. So people are starting to sort of think about next steps. Um, Rosa Parks is not, as you said, not the first person to take a stand. In fact, a decade earlier, a woman in Montgomery by the name of Viola White in 1944 had gotten arrested on the bus and decided to press her legal case. And in response, the police raped her daughter and then they tie up her appeal in state court and never gets heard and Viola White dies. Um, So one of the things that's also gonna happen is they learn from that. And so one of the things that happens during the boycott is Fred Gray, who is Rosa Parks' lawyer, then decides to file a proactive case into federal court because he's worried that they're gonna do to Rosa Parks what they did to Viola White, which is never hear her appeal, right? So that all of this kind of knowledge, all of these different groups. It's the Women's Political Council the night that Rosa Parks is arrested that decides to call for a one-day boycott on Monday when she's going to be arraigned in court. They, you know, The head of the Women's Political Council will, will go out in the middle of that night. Uh, she's a professor at Alabama State College, and with the help of two students and a colleague, run off on the mimeograph machine 35,000 leaflets that say another woman has been arrested on the bus. So it's very much about this accumulation, right? And now they're at a breaking point and now, you know, boycott on Monday, basically.
2: And so, and, and we're just real quickly, the, the, the documentary does a great job of presenting that story visually with many of the participants in that planning involved.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I think, I mean, I love the boycott section because I think, right, we both get to see, we get to see E.D. Nixon in the documentary, we get to see Joanne Robinson, um, we get to hear Claudia Colvin, who is the young woman, the 15-year-old who's arrested eight months before Rosa Parks, but is going to be one of the women who's on the federal case. Um, and we also get to see, I think, again, in the the myths and the ways we mistell this story, it's sort of like she sits down and then somehow a boycott happens. And, and what the, the kind of organization the boycott takes, um, and the fact that it's it's not just about walking, right? I think our image is that people are just walking and certainly people walk, but part of how you sustain a year-long community-wide boycott is they organize this amazing like carpool system with 40 pickup stations. And they're giving at the height of it like 10 to 15,000 rides a day, right? Serving like 20 to 30,000 people a day, right? That's not, you know, that's an incredibly organized um, infrastructure. And, right. so, and
2: she was involved in during during the actual operation and obviously absolutely. ahead of time and because well, as it continues to go on and, and it becomes more and more obvious that the white population doesn't know how to react to it. Right. Uh, the bus company, there was a quick article that was in the um, documentary that talked about it. But and if you read in the subheading, it talked about how they started to have a raise fees. Bus yep. bus fees because there wasn't enough money to pay for the suddenly because so many of their passengers weren't there anymore.
1: Right. And there's a there's a campaign early on in the white community, a sort of reverse boycott so calling on white people to take the bus. Right. Because the bus company was in trouble. Um, right. So there's all sorts of different things happening. Um, I think another thing we see in the documentary a little bit is how much the city the city hates the boycott. The, the police are massively harassing people, including, like, they literally will sit at these pickup stations and they'll just give you ticket after ticket after ticket. Uh, Joanne Robinson, again, the head of the Women's Political Council, gets 17 tickets in the first couple months of the boycott, just because they're just, there's just this, like, constant harassment, and they think that it's going to make people crumble, and it does not.
2: And, of course, we you know the the story of the of the bus of the boycott including the people that start getting involved people like Martin Luther King and and oh. some of the other folks and and it builds the the whole thing but this is where we start to get away from Rosa Parks and her importance not only to the event but also to the entire movement where what she did was so foundational Mm-hmm. That unfortunately she loses her agency almost right away because people come in and let's be honest, and <laughs> it doesn't matter your race sometimes. they're most they're male and they're big men. I heard that there was one interview you did where the big man theory, you know we know about the great man theory, but it it crosses lines so um, and that's where things really start to change for her
1: yeah and i mean so she as you just mentioned she gets fired from her job five weeks in Uh, her husband loses his job shortly after because they forbid any talk he's the barber on the air force base and they forbid any talk of her or the boycott and that's for a proud political man like raymond that's untenable they will spend the entire year of the boycott without steady work Uh, they never find steady work again Mm -hmm. in montgomery they're getting death threats right i think the other thing we we often miss is like the you know the real cost and sacrifice like this entails for Rosa Parks because again if we just focus on that one day and not what plays out um, and that even after the boycott's successful end uh, December 21st 1956 they still can't find work they, they you know they st- they're still getting credible death, death threats and so in August of 1957, eight months after the boycott ends, they will leave Montgomery for Detroit because they can't, you know, they are kind of forced to leave. And that's not usually part of the story we tell Um, and really look at um, particularly the kind of economic retaliation against civil rights activists. And this is not just Mrs. Parks, um, but obviously we're talking about her today. And, And that will continue in Detroit as well. It takes, you know, it really, the papers at the Library of Congress are very rich. Uh, there's lots of things in it. And one of the things that are in it are her income tax records.
2: Right. You, you so even you quoted see, some of them, right?
1: Yeah, you get to see it. I mean, so they are not middle class before she makes her bus stand. They're living in Cleveland court projects. Uh, she's an assistant tailor at the biggest department store Montgomery Fair. Basically what that means is... Uh, Montgomery Fair is a segregated department store, so she spends her days in a kind of stuffy back room, tailoring white men's suits. Raymond, as I said, is a barber. Um, So they post an annual income in 1955 of about $3,800, $3,900. And uh, by the next year, it's cut in half. Uh, Similarly, 57 as well. 59 is the worst year. They're in Detroit by this time. They post an income of about $700. Right. they are extremely in trouble um, it's not till 1966 right 11 years later that they have an income comparable to what they had in 55 and again we're 11 years later and 11 years of inflation later right so we okay. don't talk about that like decade of suffering um, and you know, in
2: 66 kind of- this course is when she starts working for John Conyers
1: exactly exactly um, and she gets health insurance I mean that's the other really Um, So the middle chapter of my book, um, and there's a a section in the documentary, right? This is a very, I mean, I talk about it as a decade of suffering, right? And it includes health problems. She develops ulcers during the boycott, which get worse. They land her in the hospital at the end of 1959. They can't afford to pay the hospital bill. It goes into collections, right? It's very, these are very hard years for the Parks family. Um, And it's Conyers, I mean, both the job working in his, Detroit office. She had supported Conyers long shot bid for Congress in 64. And so one of the first things he does is hire her. Uh, but the, the job comes with health insurance, right? She's never had health insurance before. And so that's incredibly valuable.
2: Um, yeah. Right. And of course, she's not just there as a symbol. She knows what she's doing. And she's, right. she's of actual important help to him in, in what he was trying to do
1: absolutely and particularly those first years she's really his you know voice and community presence she's going to a lot of events on his behalf she's um you know some people are telling me that you know she's giving him credibility right he is a young he's not the favored person and you know there's it's a very crowded primary in 64. he wins there's a recount he wins by about 40 votes um he's not the favored candidate uh And so part of what she is bringing him is a kind of heft and and willingness to, you know, go to all of these community events, community activism, and kind of, you know, give him that credibility on the ground.
2: So at this point, then, her story becomes, by this point, she's a legend to some people and nothing more.
1: But what's interesting? So when I was doing the book, I interviewed some people who worked with her at Conyers' office um, in those first years, you know, in the late '60s, and they said it was really interesting when when people, when black people would come into the office and they would say, "This is, you know, Rosa Parks," people would know. When white people come into the office, they would you would say, "This is Rosa Parks," they would not know. So I think it's not really till the '80s and then really and the '90s where Rosa Parks becomes the kind of household you know, school children, every school, ch- you know, child knows her. Um, that doesn't happen for decades lo- longer.
2: And yet, and I still, I, when I think when I first watched the documentary and the in, the initial to tell the truth appearance, mm-hmm. and I think when I posted about watching it, I said, I, I think I used the word cringeworthy, <laughs> if that's mm-hmm.
1: about oh, that God.
2: appearance. And that was in 1980, because you can actually see the full appearance on YouTube and oh it's so cringy it is I mean Nipsey Russell's the only one that clearly and because he knew her and he he even says I asked questions to her specifically to bring the names of some of these people out into the public which of course the full the documentary doesn't include the full clip but if you go back on YouTube and watch the full clip he makes sure because the other folks they're asking their questions they're trying to be nice and but nobody knows who she is he's the only one of the of the people there who actually can identify her by look and you would be you would and you would think that as well known as she supposedly was that that would not happen except for the one african american who happened to be there
1: the other thing i think that's really cringy is both one of the panelists and the host himself like make these comments like any of you could do it all, you know all of you could have been the one you know and he's just like no that really no most of us could not have almost none of us mm-hmm. right, could have done what she did and so there's so many cringy moments um in that in that um when i saw it when i was working on the book i was it just and then Uh, for people who haven't seen it or watched it the, the the kind of stereotype of Rosa Parks is who wins right this kind of um middle class you know wearing pearls um right not talking very detailedly about organizing or about what happens that's who the panelists end up voting for because that's the idea of who that of, she, of who she is, not like what it actually takes. Um, but yeah, the Nipsey part is Nipsey Russell part is really moving, I think. Because
2: Especially if if they had been listening to him, they should have known who it was because have, <laughs> he was being right. pretty asked, clear. He asked one of the other panelists one question or something, I think, just to, to finish it off. But he he went right to it because he knew and he wasn't going to not use his time to ask questions because the periods are very short. You only have a minute or two to ask questions, but he made right. sure. Um, about that kind of stuff, and it just, ooh, and that's where we get back to this whole idea of what we don't really, what people don't really know, or what, and the funny part about it is you then use this, not to to skip to the other book, but just to sort of bring that up, because your second, your the, the other book you wrote right after this one, A, A More Beautiful and Terrible History, sort of builds on this whole idea of how we don't, use civil rights history correctly or worse how we misuse it and and so and you talk about rosa parks in that book as well so this whole concept of how it's being used how this history is being used in a bad way uh mm-hmm. continues to be an issue given that the second book came out in 2018 right
1: yeah. yep. And I mean, I think it was both realizing after the Parks book comes out, how much people are hungry for that argument and want. And then we have the kind of advent of Black Lives Matter and the kind of weaponizing of what I think is a, you know, a real distorted history of the civil rights movement, you know, gets taken up in the public against, you know, young people's movements today um, we see other people using the civil rights movement just to feel proud of themselves and proud of just like where we've come, right? So, um, one of the moments that we see at the end of the documentary, right, is one of the few bipartisan moments in uh, Barack Obama's second term, which is when um, Mitch McConnell, John Boehner, Nancy Pelosi join President Obama to dedicate the statue of Rosa Parks in, this, in the Capitol Statuary Hall. It's the first full size statue of a black person to be put there. Um, and it's this moment of bipartisanship, but it really becomes this moment of celebrating America and celebrating American progress and not a moment to like, recommit to this, to the challenges, including that it's I mean, I argue it's not I, just ironic that that same day, the Supreme Court is hearing arguments in Shelby County, beholder, it's that it's, it's connected. Right. Mm -hmm. That if you have if you're memorializing something and, you know, as um, as the former mayor of Birmingham would put it, like you just put your bad images in the past. Right. And you say those are done. And that, you know, we had that history and we got past it. And therefore, we don't need continued voting rights protections. Right. Because the Shelby County case turns on that. This is these are old facts. This is 40 year old facts um, not relevant to present day. Right. And 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 a kind of constant memorialization of the civil rights movement is in the past is really crucial to that. Um,
2: so. I was actually living in Alabama at the time of that case and actually living right up against Shelby County. I was, so I was in the suburbs of Birmingham. So, uh, um, but so that whole, those names, you know, Mm -hmm. sounded very, you know, but, but you're right. And in fact, this goes back to the book where your new introduction starts with that story. Yes. Uh, the old introduction started with the her death and the laying in state all over the. But then you even say right in the new introduction that, or the old one, that she becomes something you want a, a in lying in state is somebody you wanted to be seen with.
0: Yes. And
2: yep. and and it becomes an image thing and and so but this goes back like I say to the second book which. Um, builds on what you discussed in the first book and of course a lot of your other writing uh, of course the other good thing about the rose parks book uh, the rebellious life of mrs rosa parks is that now you your latest writing in it is a a, a, a children's a, a,
0: young school, adult.
2: a young adult excuse me thank you a young adult uh version what happened to to bring that about
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off
1: so you know if you talk to me 10 years ago i was very adamant that we had to get her like she i really felt like she'd been trapped you know as a kind of hero for children and that's what kind of justified not giving her there's no serious biography we had um but then right more beautiful and terrible comes out i'm doing all this public speaking people are constantly asking me you know what I, what, what should I be teaching? I, what, what, you know, And then I start to feel like a bit of a jerk. It's like one thing to be like, don't, that's bad. And then I felt like I needed to have some skin in the game. Uh, I should say that I began, uh, after college, I taught um, African-American history in Boston. Uh, and so it was a little bit then kind of coming full circle on it. And and so many of my students and so many of my friends who teach it, you know, universities across the country, when they teach the book or when they teach, you know, this Fuller History of herbs mm-hmm. students are so mad, right? It's like, why didn't I get this before now? Uh, which I agree with, right? And so in some ways, I got my head around, like, what would it mean to be able to, you know, for students? And the, the book is really geared for like 12 and up. So, um, you know, to get this in high school, to get to not have to, in some sense, relearn. And, and in many ways, I think, when you see kind of what her history is versus how you've been taught, like the whole, it's sort of a house of cards in terms of like, well, if, they, if this is the way it's been, you know, if they told me this, then there's all sorts of stuff. Um, and because she has such a huge life of freedom fighting, right, that begins with Scottsboro, that goes into the 90s, that covers everything from um, obviously from the bus to criminal justice, to Vietnam, to South Africa, to the death penalty. It, it's also really a window into kind of the United States in the 20th century, African-American freedom struggle in the 20th century. Um, so it really, in terms of using it in school, it because she's there, because the civil rights movement's there, I think many teachers are hungry to to do it better, right? And so um, so that's how I got my head around that. And one of the things that's been very exciting um, and is gonna continue is we, around the curriculum, we all, sorry, around the film, we've also built, a, a team of educators and I have built a curriculum to teach the film and the, the young adult book and both through um, Lush Cosmetics and, and a grant from the Ford Foundation, we actually have Been able to give out um, books to teachers, uh, um, copies of the young adult book to teachers so they they can be teaching. People can start to teach her differently. So I think part of what I'm hoping is going to happen is, right, you don't have to wait to right to get to a specialized college class to get this fuller history.
2: And coming to that, and I know we're sort of jumping around, but I wanted to make sure we covered everything and partly because... Like I say, we, we the the nice aspect of this right now is the fact, and the reason one one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, but is that of course now there's the documentary, which is also called the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. It it's basic it's based on your book. A lot of documentaries these days use this concept of of focusing a, a topic, but using a book or books to help do that. I mean, American experience does it all the time. So does Alex Gibney. So the idea of using a book is, 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 is a normal procedure, but it was great that they happen, that the decision was, it was going to be your book. And of course you have a consulting producer credit and you also appear in it quite a bit in in doing interviews. So I guess the easiest question is how did that start? I mean, where did that all come about?
1: So one of the, I mean, so since the, Park's book came out, and again, the reception to it was beyond my wildest imagining in terms of how hungry people were. And so I've spent the past nine years trying to, you know, doing all sorts of things to get this history out in different kinds of ways. And one of the things that I I do often is like on her birthday and on December 1st, you know, I will do these sort of Twitter threads that sort of talk about things you don't know, or I'll do a Twitter thread on Malcolm X's birthday about his relationship to her. Um, so February 4th, 2019, like as I had done in previous years, I do a long Twitter thread. And a documentary filmmaker, Johanna Hamilton, who I had met um, a little bit through uh, another documentary she did, which was called 1971, which was on the, the activist break into the FBI headquarters in media Pennsylvania 1971. Um, so I had met her. She sees the Twitter thread, and she sends me a message that says, "Gene is someone doing a documentary," and I say no, and she's like, "What? I can't believe that," and and then we talk, and um, she, and then she brings in another filmmaker to, I mean, to 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 do it with her, um, and we do a long interview at that point, and that and then we're up and running and then and then they reach out so Soladette O'Brien has started a kind of production company and so then they reach out to her and the, her company comes on board and then and then basically they make a sizzle which is like a sh- you know like a little trailer that you take out to get funding and mm-hmm. that's why Peacock puts up the money to to make it so it begins as this um, you know, as, as one of my many attempts to just like be, and I, and I and I always find that these Rosa Parks Twitter threads, people like lots of people retweet them and like them, in part because it is that like, these are things you don't know. And, and in some ways the things we don't know about her are really very relevant to today. So the fact that Rosa Parks spends more than half her life in Detroit, challenging the racism as she puts it of the Northern promised land that wasn't, Right. Uh, She serves on a people's tribunal around police brutality, right? Like there's all sorts of ways that what she what her actual life looks like gives us a lot for today. And so um, so in many ways, those threads have often gotten. uh, But this was an incredible outgrowth of just doing a Twitter thread Um, was. And so that's where it starts. And and now it's. it It premiered at Tribeca in June, and now it's out nationally on Peacock and. Um, so that's very exciting.
2: Yeah, that's, that was, you know, obviously I'd been hearing about it on Twitter because if you're on Twitter and you follow Soledad O'Brien, it's hard to miss the publicity (laughs) that she's put out for it. And, um, and the bottom line is, is that, uh, Tribeca was obviously, you know, the discussion and then when it finally started to come out where it was going to appear for, you know, that you're going to be able to watch it streaming on Peacock. And first day of on Peacock, of course, I watched it. watched it a second time yesterday when I knew I was going to be talking with you. So I was just, just to get some of the stuff in my mind since, as I say, even though nominally this is the New Books and Film podcast, I do interviews with other folks that aren't necessarily film-related. But in this case, we have a nice little combination given that the two are together. Um, so obviously the film, every sign that it's been incredibly successful... Uh, it's one of the things I like about it and not this, this is not a negative or a positive it's just something is that it's not over long. It's an hour and 40 minutes, hour and 38 minutes, which is perfect. I mean, you know, especially if it if it's something that might get used in a classroom. Absolutely. Anything that can be broken down into s- smaller segments but not too without too much trouble is going to be helpful. Yeah,
1: no. I think one of the things I love the most about it is you know, sometimes I would say when I was giving talks, like, can you call up Rosa Parks's voice in your head? Everybody in the audience knows who Rosa Parks is, but can, can you, what does she sound like? What do her ideas sound like? And I, I mean, that's probably my favorite thing about the film is that you can't go away not knowing what she sounds like, what her ideas sound like, um, you know, that, that notion that she's just in profile in that most famous picture of her looking out the window of the bus, right? Which is that we often, and there's, you know, Similarly in the film, you get all of these photos of her where she's looking right at you, where she's in action, where she's not just like in passive profile. And I think like the, just even those facts alone just change how people will see her and understand her.
2: And of course, a lot of the footage, in fact, virtually all of the actual footage of her talking. And I know there's a an actress who or, or someone who does voiceover of some of her writings during it but there's plenty of film of her as well is that it's long after the boycott so Mm -hmm. these are things that she's doing going forward that proves and shows the amount of an activist she really was that it wasn't one you know it wasn't the infamous uh, she was tired so she sat down
1: trope And and she talks about that there's a great quote like i never said i was tired right i never told people i was tired right you know like might feel retired, right? But just the ways that that idea is so seductive. Um,
2: and and in the book, you you talk about this about how she was. She was the part of her that, you know, was willing to to do what she was doing, understanding that it would what it was going to do to her life or what it did to her life, as we talked about as far as financial. It was not going to be something she would ever complain about it wasn't something that she was going to say hey where's mine or anything like that but there's no question that there still is that in some of the the things that was talked about particularly in the documentary and I know you talk about in the book too is this going back to getting pushed back into the crowd and other people taking over that part of the, the, the story even though they came along later
1: right right and i think people like so there are definitely moments also where the fact that she's a woman so she doesn't get to speak or she and there are moments when we can definitely tell she realizes that uh for instance at the march on washington and she definitely writes about that and says that you know that wasn't right and that no women get to speak at the march on washington doesn't sit well with her um and then in other ways she's just willing to just um I mean she understands she's a symbol she's she in many ways just is willing to because she believes that part of how you push the movement forward is by kind of knowing this history of struggle that has gone before you because that's really pivotal to her she's sort of she's willing to kind of show up to all these things and be this historical symbol to try to sort of get people to sort of see the movement continuing now obviously we can argue that gets away from her at moments, right? Where where she's being used in ways that's actually putting the movement in the past even though that's not what she's trying to do and she will say, you know, kind of archly like, you know, people ask me if I knew Harriet Tubman. It's just like, you know, this notion of like just being this like historical relic. Um but but that she she I think one of the other things if we think about her willingness to go forward in 1955 was certainly understanding what what could happen and and in some ways I think people part of why we see this mobilizing around her is people understanding that she wasn't going to flinch under the pressure but that there's a lot of pressure that comes to bear um, and and you know we can see that in the both in the I mean we can see it, it they show it in the film as well as my book
2: so uh, I wanted to briefly talk about uh, primary sources mostly because okay. that's what history is. <laughs> and that's what I care about the most is the primary material. And because once again, this is something that gets brought up both in the original introduction, but also in the new introduction, which is that there was a large amount of material from her estate that was tied up in court. And at the time when you wrote the, the book, you had no access to that material. You had access to some, but not that material. But then by the time the introduction, the second introduction was written, you did have access to that material. I guess I have to, how much more, is, how much did things change? Were there major changes to anything you had written in the in the original book from seeing some of this newer newer sources?
1: So I was, you know, as you, I mean, as you understand, right? I was very nervous. I was very nervous to publish the original book without it. But it just seemed like it was not at all clear what would bl- break this logjam. Um, who broke the logjam is Howard Buffett. Howard Buffett basically paid five million dollars and like and donated her papers to the Library of Congress, and people can go on the library. Now they've all been digitalized, so you can see them. Um, so when I go, I go a few months before they open them to the Library of Congress to look through them with them and to kind of, um, and I was very nervous. Uh, and then midway through the week, one of the archivists comes and says, you know, Jean, I've been, the person who was really doing the bulk of the work of cataloging. And she said, Jean, I've been looking and I I, I've been I keep expecting that things are gonna contradict your book and they don't. And I think that, I mean, I, that was sort of, I, it, I've been feeling that way, but it was interesting for her to say that. I think what the materials at the Library of Congress do is they really deepen themes in the book that would have been even more fleshed out. Um, So her role during the boycott, I think, becomes even more indelible in all of the um, ways that she is. I mean, she's both one of the kind of most successful fundraisers during the boycott Uh, because she gets fired five weeks in. She does all these different things for the boycott, but one of them is she's just traveling all over the place, and you get a real sense in the papers of a lot of that. The suffering is so much worse. I mean, I'd written about the suffering. I'd been able to see it. Um, the black press in, you know, was invaluable. I could not have written my book without the black press and without the fact that it had been, the major newspapers had been digitalized by the time I started working on the book, because I was able to go through decades um, yeah, it would have been impossible. And so I'd been able to get through that, through letters to people like Septima Clark at Highlander, I'd been able to like paint a picture, but then you get in the papers and it's just even worse. So you have them closing their bank account. You have them taking a loan out of, you know, um, Raymond's life insurance and like paying it back $2 after $2. You have just all of these very sad, you know, she's sick, you know, you, you have a record of her going to the doctor here and there and, and just all of this, you know, clearly nervous about money. And so all of these like receipts and records, and then the income taxes, where you just get to see it plain as day of just this like catastrophe. Um, so the suffering is so much worse. Um, one of the other things that's in the papers, probably the most exciting thing in the papers is there's some personal writings I had read that she had been asked potentially to do an autobiography. She doesn't do it um, in the 50s or 60s, but I believe that some of that writing is probably there from her thinking about it. And so there's a little bit more of just like both what it was like for her and how hard it was to be a troublemaker in those years and the cost of it and how crazy she felt and how lonely she felt. And so that is really rich too, this like, and, and some of that material is what Lisa Gay Hamilton, the actress who's, you know, who's reading the written Rosa Parks uh, brings to the film is some of that personal writing.
2: Yeah, I will say this about the way the film uses dialogue or not dialogue, speeches and such. They do a very good job of transitioning from the actress to Rosa Parks, own material, or own voice, yeah. so that it, it does translate very well I mean, I on just a filmmaking Level, you don't lose the you don't lose the thread, even though it's different voices, one being her actual voice and one being someone else's. But it works, it transitions very well. But in the um, education material you developed, have you is there material in there about searching out the material in the Library of Congress? Have you been able to to talk a little bit about that with with uh, preparing for educational aspects of the material you've done?
1: I mean, some of it is using primary sources. um, And I can um, it the all the educational materials through the Zen education project. And if you go to Zen education project, and you look under what's called campaigns, and it says teaching Rosa Parks, you can find um, all of the materials there. Um, Part of it is using the film in kind of two different ways. One is to to sort of encourage critical thinking and critical reading and and thinking critically about history with students and monument making. Uh, And then there's a second set of lessons that are more thematic. So, allowing her life to, for instance, teach us, um, you know, looking at the Black freedom struggle outside the South, or looking at race, gender, and the law, Mm -hmm. or looking at Kind of the, like organizing in the the Montgomery bus boycott. So sort of more thematic lessons. Um, so allowing her life to be a window in for, again for so students before they get to college can get some of these this kind of historical material.
2: Yeah, what, uh, archives can be so it's you know the fact that they're there and this is I was interviewing someone else a couple of weeks ago and one of the statements i met is we need an archive of archives we don't know where a lot of these archives are and in this case because it's something where her archive was in the you know public knowledge because of the court case and stuff um not being able to know sometimes where these collections are or the, or how well they've been taken care of luckily the Library of Congress is pretty good about when they get a collection of doing something with them, so that worked out very well as well. But um, um, I know we've been mostly touching things, but I felt like the documentary, I really wanted to make sure we talked a lot about it. So, um, And it's as you say, it's on Peacock right now, streaming in the United States. I don't know. Um, And then, of course, it was at Tribeca, and there's been a couple of other presentations. I, I assume that the reactions have been spectacular from everybody you've talked to about it.
1: I mean, we're definitely hearing lots of good things. We're hearing that it may be shown on MSNBC in a few months. So um, well, Peacock, people Peacock, may know the yeah. NBC, right? So that like sort of the different platforms, um, I know they're working to have it I'm thinking about foreign distribution. Um, but yeah, it's very, yeah, the reaction has been Really lovely. And, um, you know, and I think people love Rosa Parks. And then, I mean, I think one of the things for me in this project, and then I think for many people, is like, it's not often you get to demythologize someone and they become even better. Right? And that's what's really like with her, you can get behind the myth, you can think about all the things about the myth, which are so interesting. And yet, the actual Rosa Parks is even more impressive. And so it's you know it's like a twofer, right? It's like,
2: and of course it's still important that we continue because there is, like you say, at the time of both the uh, her death and then of course the statue, uh, uh, dedication, there seemed to be this, and part of it was, there became this idea of post-racial America, Mm -hmm. and part of it was that kind of thing, but also Barack Obama being elected president suddenly. This suddenly became a major change, and yet we know now, obviously, that that's not true. And if if anything, things may have gotten worse. And the documentary has its echoes in 21st century America.
0: Right.
1: And I mean, I think certainly part of the urgency of it is, right, so many of the issues we face today are issues that she was struggling on. And I think she gives us a way forward, but I think there's a kind of urgency. Because I think a lot of people pay lip service to like honoring Parks and you know her legacy. And I think what the documentary and what my book I think hopefully does is to sort of say, well, if we're really serious about that, that requires kind of redoubling our efforts now around issues like voting. <sighs> issues like and,
2: and, and- yeah, the idea that voting is continues you know, supposedly everything's okay with voting now, and yet things are even worse. And 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 that was one of the things she fought for and tried. Oh. You know herself and that whole story of her trying to get herself registered and, and oh, such. Yeah? So so well. And then I'm. Hopefully, you're. I, I, do you even have time to do much writing or research these days? Or are you finally getting back to 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 anything in particular? Or are you just continuing to to teach and, and just move with what you've been working on?
1: So I have a new book project, and it's on um, Martin, Dr. King's work around Northern racism. And I think this whole kind of side of him that we don't really know so much in his critique of Northern liberalism is not actually liberal at home, and and all the work that he does around Northern movements. So,
2: Which, um, as we've pointed that. out, is there, she's important with that as well, yeah, given absolutely. that she lived in Detroit yeah. so long. She probably I don't even know I'd have to sit there and do the maths. I would say that she well most She's of her adult life, yeah. most into- of her adult life was was in the north now and, and, yeah. and so on. So well, as I say, I really appreciated that you were able to find time. Um and I really wanted to get this out as soon and not but we're talking we talked with 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 Gene Theo Harris, uh author of the book, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Also, the documentary um, based on the book is the same title, now streaming on Peacock. And her second book that we pointed out is has some similarities as far as a continuation of the discussion, A More Beautiful and Terrible History, the Uses and Misuses... Oh, I can't see the rest of the title. I'm sorry about that. Of Civil Rights History. Thank you. I thought that's what it was, but I didn't want to come right on and say it and be wrong. So... Um, Thank you for your time and continued good luck with everything you're doing.
1: Thanks so much.
2: My great thanks to Jean Thiel Harris for her time. I hope you find her book and the documentary to be incredibly helpful and interesting. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.